Well, good evening. As always, thank you for being part of our Wednesday night Bible study. I love you. I appreciate you. I'm so thankful that we have had the opportunity to, uh, to have this study this, this quarter. Um, obviously, we're dealing with very intimate uh, issues. We're dealing with very sensitive issues. And I hate to even use the word issues uh, because uh, we're, we're dealing with, with life with people, with individuals, with our own lives, um, and also the lives of people that we know and love. Um, and if we don't know and love, we ought to know and love. Um, and so we're, we're talking about sexuality and what it, what it means to really have a Christian view of sexual ethics. And we've talked at length multiple times. We've said that it's more than rules about do and do not. It's, it's about our view of the human body, especially. And tonight, in particular, as we talk about gender um, and sex, uh, it's, it's important to understand that, that Christians have a unique view of the human body, what the human body is, what the human body is for, what its purpose is, why it was created, what God intends to do with the body, what God is doing with the body when he saves us, that when he saves us, it's not just about our, our spirit, it's not just about our mind, it's not just about our heart, it's about our body, it's about our body becoming a temple of the Holy Spirit. And when God saves us on the final day, he is going to save our bodies. He is going to redeem our body from the grave. He's going to resurrect and transform our bodies into an immortal body. This body will be transformed. So God cares about the human body, and God has a purpose for the human body. And if we're going to understand and embrace a Christian view of sexual ethics, then we have to understand that it's very much about the body. I want to go back to what we said last week, uh, at the very end of last week's class, because one, because we kind of ran out of time and I had to kind of rush through that very last slide, but two, because I think it also pertains to what we're going to talk about tonight. Last week we said this, that the church must proclaim and embody the message, Jesus loves you and you can trust him even to the extent of surrendering to him your sexuality. Okay, that's what this class is all about. That, that regardless of whatever your temptations are, whatever your inclinations are, whatever your desires are, whatever you're, you're struggling with, whatever that might be, that being a follower of Jesus is about understanding and believing that he, he really does love you and that he really is trustworthy, that you can trust him with your life with your past, with your present, with your future, with your body, with your sexuality. And that's a big deal, isn't it? It's a big deal to say, Jesus, I trust you so much that I'm going to surrender my sexuality to you. And that means that if we marry, if, if we choose to be married people, and we've surrendered our sexuality to Jesus then even our marriage is going to be devoted to honoring and glorifying Jesus. So that we're going to say, my marriage belongs to you, and I'm going to live out my marriage, not just for my own happiness and satisfaction, I'm going to live out my marriage for your glory. 
And, and that, that, that's going to mean when I engage in sex and how I engage in sex and the way that I love and how I treat my spouse. All of this is for the glory of Jesus. Or, or if we do not choose to be married or if for whatever reason we're not married and we remain celibate and single, then even that, even our celibacy, our singleness, we surrender to Jesus. We're trusting him with our singleness. Whatever, whatever aspect of our body, whatever aspect of ourself, whatever aspect of our sexuality, we are saying, Jesus, I believe that you love me and you have my best interest at heart and what you tell me to do and ask of me is for your glory and for my good and for the church's good and for the good of the world. And so I'm, I'm going to choose to trust you even when it's hard, even, even when I struggle with it, even when I don't want to do it, I, I'm going to obey out of faith, out of faith. And so, of course, of course, people that don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, people that don't follow Jesus, of course, they don't have the same sexual ethic that, that Christians do. I wouldn't expect them to. I would never expect somebody to follow a Christian sexual ethic who doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so sometimes we go about things in all the wrong ways, I believe, by trying to insist that people follow a sexual ethic rather than trying to encourage people to believe that Jesus is trustworthy. That's what we're supposed to be convincing people of, that Jesus is who he says he is and that you can trust him with your sexuality. That, that's, what, that's what we're doing when we're evangelizing, when we're sharing the good news. We're saying Jesus is trustworthy. You can trust him with your sexuality. So instead of trying to enforce rules upon somebody who never signed up to, to follow those rules, it's our job as the church to, to help people to believe that Jesus really can be trusted. We do that both in a positive way and avoid the, the other side of it, and that is undermining that message. The church must prevent that message from being undermined by our own, we said three things last week, hypocrisy, hostility, or heresy. And all of those things undermine this message that Jesus loves you and you can trust him with everything, including your sexuality. If we're hypocritical, that's one way that we can undermine it, with our hypocrisy, if we're hypocritical and we're saying, hey, you should do this, and we hold people to a certain standard, but at the same time, we're not actually living by that standard. We're telling other people, you should trust Jesus with your sexuality, but we're not actually trusting Jesus with our sexuality. Then we're undermining that message. And, and, and church, historically, historically, we we have undermined the message of the gospel, this message that Jesus is who he says he is, that he loves people, that he can be trusted. We've undermined that message with our hypocrisy, haven't we? We've failed to take the log out of our own eye, and instead we focus on the speck in other people's eyes. Religious people have tended to do that. The Pharisees of Jesus' day tended to do that. They had a log in their eye, but yet they were trying to pick the speck out of other people's eye. And so we have to start with ourselves and understand that if we are not trusting Jesus with our sexuality, 
If we're not trusting Jesus with our sexuality, then we are undermining the very message that we're supposed to be trying to share with the world. Secondly, hostility, our anger, our frustration, our fear. When when we are combative with people, then we're undermining this message. If, If our job is to communicate to the world, Jesus can be trusted then then we have to demonstrate that by showing that as Jesus' people, we also can be trusted, that we love people. If all we are showing to people is we're angry at you and we're frustrated with you and we're afraid of you, we're afraid of what you're doing to our community, we're afraid of what you're doing to our culture, we don't like how you live, we don't like the choices that you've made, we don't like whatever it is, If that's all that people know about us, then why would they believe that the one we follow loves them and can be trusted with their sexuality? Our hostility undermines that message. And then finally, number three, our heresy. If we change the message in order for people to like us or accept us or because we don't like the message, If we don't like what Scripture says about the body or sexuality or life and we change it to accommodate our own desires or the desires of others, then we're undermining the message. We're saying Jesus can't be trusted with your sexuality, so therefore live however you you choose to live. We can't change the message. So all of these things... And, and we can see these, these three things, can't we? We can see these things at work. We can see hypocrisy at work. We can see uh, hostility at work. We can see heresy at work. And all of these things have to be avoided if we are going to proclaim this message that Jesus loves people. Jesus loves people. He wants to forgive people. He wants to, he wants to cleanse them. He wants them to be the temple of God's Holy Spirit and that they can trust him with their life, with their body, with their sexuality. If we are going to be part of proclaiming that message, then we have to make sure that we are not undermining that message. And I I wanna focus again a little bit on that idea of hostility, because there's a lot right now, isn't there? I mean, just, just turn on the news or get on social media, you don't have to look very far, and there is hostility. We even call it culture, what? wars, right? Culture wars. And we're not kidding when we call it culture wars because we're at war with each other. And sometimes I don't think we even know what we're fighting for or what we're fighting against. We don't even really understand what we're talking about sometimes. We just know we're afraid. We just know we're angry. We just know we don't like something. And so we're, we're, we're yelling and we're screaming and we're fighting and we're drawing lines in the sand. And sometimes we forget that there are real life people in the middle of the shots that are being fired. And we're not just talking about ideologies. We're not just talking about opinions. We're not just talking about policies. We're not just talking about politicians or political parties. We're talking about people, people, people that you and I are called to love, people that you and I are called to share this message that Jesus loves them, 
that Jesus died for them, that Jesus can be trusted with their life, with their body, with their sexuality, with all of these things. So that, that's our job. And yes, I realize, I realize that we sometimes have an emotional reaction to things that happen in our world. Of course we do. Of course we do. Of course there are going to be things that happen and it's going to frustrate you. It's going to make you mad. It's going to make you afraid. But understand that if you live in that and you just allow yourself to marinate in that fear and anger, you're not helping anybody. You're not helping anybody. We have to put away our anger. We have to put away our anger. We have to embrace the peace that passes understanding. And we, we have to trust Jesus with our past, with our present, and with our future. So, again, where we are as a, as a culture, where we are at this moment in our, in, our, in our world, it's due to a lot of factors. We don't have time to go into everything. But just as we think about gender, think about two, two areas two ways that, that our view of and perspective on gender has changed and why it's changed. One is the Industrial Revolution. Industrial Revolution. Prior to like the late 1700s, um, where, where did people work? People worked at, in, on their family farm, in their family business. They worked at home. They worked at home, both men and women worked at home. They worked with their families. Men were intimately connected to the raising of their family because they spent their time on, on the farm or they spent their time at the family business and they all worked together. They lived life together. And then the Industrial Revolution comes along and now all of a sudden men are, are leaving home and going off to factories and offices and these kinds of things. That changed the way that we thought about family, changed the way we thought about men's roles and women's roles, it's important for us to recognize that that way of thinking, men go off to work and women stay home and, and do the womenly things and men go off and do the manly things, that a lot of that thinking is due to cultural changes. Another thing that changed is birth control, right? I, I don't think that we have any idea how much that has changed the way we think about life and marriage and family and sexuality, the way we think about gender, we have in lots of different ways, not just birth control, that's just one example of how we've said, listen, we want to live life on our own terms. We want to live life on our own terms. We, we want to be able to be whatever we want to be, do whatever we want to do, and we don't want to be limited by by nature and the world, right? I want to be able to travel wherever I want to travel, so I want cars that'll take me a long way really fast, or I want airplanes that'll take me a long way really fast, or I don't want to be limited by how many kids we have, or so we have invented ways that we can be whatever we want to be and do whatever we want to do, and we're not limited or held back in our dreams by nature, and that's really changed the way we think about life, family, and marriage, and sex, and and gender, all of these things have. And so we're at a very unique moment in history because of the last several hundred years. Here is where we are. And, and, and the way that we think about, about biology and the way that we think about sex um, is shaped by where we've been and, and how we've 
come to where we are. So let me, let's define some terms real quick. Number one, what is a person's sex? So when we talk about sex as in sex and gender, uh, let's talk about what we mean by biological sex. First of all, a person's sex is a designation based on biological factors, such as internal and external anatomy, as well as chromosomes and, and hormones, right? So when we talk about sex, as opposed to gender, we'll talk about gender in just a second, but when we talk about sex, we're talking about a person's biology, not, not how they, they think or how they feel or even how they act or what they wear, but, but their biology, right? Now, there's also, there's also a condition known as intersex, um, and, and sometimes there are people that are born and their sex, their biological sex, is ambiguous, and, and it's difficult to tell whether this person is a male or female, whether they, they belong in the male category or the female category. Sometimes intersex individuals, it, it, it is obvious whether they belong in the male category or the female category, but sometimes it's, it's difficult or it's ambiguous uh, to know whether or not they belong in the male category or the female category. But this doesn't mean, just because there are intersex individuals, doesn't mean that, that sex is a spectrum. It doesn't mean that, that there's a third sex. I, I really like the way that Preston Sprinkle put it in his book, Embodied, which I, I recommend that book, Embodied. He put it this way. He's talking about those individuals for whom uh, they have both, um, they had anatomy of both male and female, and he said it this way. I find it more helpful to say that such people, beautiful people, created in God's image and worthy of respect, value, and admiration, are a blend of the two biological sexes rather than a third sex. It may sound like I'm splitting hairs, but I think this is more than semantics. When the Bible and science talk about humans as sexed creatures, they recognize two categories of sex, male and female. Though some intersex people embody traits from both categories, there are still only two categories of sex. Okay, so when we talk about an intersex individual uh, that, has, that has characteristics, whether those be chromosomes or anatomy of both male and female, that, that's still a biological category. When we talk about gender, there's sort of a new way of talking about people's gender. Until fairly recently, gender was used synonymously with sex. So if you talk about gender or sex, you could use either word. But now it's more considered to be a designation based on psychological, behavioral, and social factors. So in other words, how a person identifies themselves, um, how a person dresses, how a person behaves, etc. So again, when we talk about and think about what Scripture says about gender or the two sexes, male and female, we've sort of transitioned into an era where now we're, we've begun to think about and, and I think Christians have as much to do with this way of thinking as, as anyone. We, we have this tendency to think about gender as a, as a spectrum, as opposed to a binary, as opposed to male and female. We have this tendency now to think about gender as a, as a spectrum. And again, I, I think we reinforce that idea when we say things to, when we say to a, a young boy, we say, stop acting like a 
girl or you throw like a girl or you're acting like a girl or you need to be a man or when we say this behavior is manly or that behavior is girly or we 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 say that like wearing pink or liking pink is a girl's color wait a second right wait a second because none of those things have have anything to do with biology and and either you're a male or you're a female, whether or not you like the color blue or you like the color pink or whether or not you're an athlete or you're not, these things don't make you more of a male or less of a male or more of a female or less of a female, right? We have to be very careful with the way we think about these things and talk about these things because we reinforce a a narrative that isn't what Scripture teaches. And it's not even the narrative we say that we hold to. I mean, as a young man that was growing up and and never really liked the things that were stereotypically masculine, I never had a four-wheel drive pickup truck and I wasn't much of a hunter and I was never an athlete and there were lots of things. I never played football a day in my life. None of those things. There were multiple occasions where I was misgendered on purpose as a way of teasing. And and guys do that to each other. I don't know if girls do that to each other or not. But this is reinforcing a narrative that you can be more of a man or less of a man or more of a woman or less of a woman. Masculinity and femininity are not on a spectrum. You cannot be less of a man or more of a man or less of a woman or more of a woman. Either you are or you're not. But, but again, when we, when we think about it in, this, in these terms, it, it actually ends up, I think, confusing the issue. But as we think about gender and as we think about our internal sense of self and thinking about ourselves and do we think of ourselves as a man or do we think of ourselves as a woman and and what does that even mean to think of yourself as a man or a woman Um, there's some other terms that I think are important so let's kind of walk through these because you'll hear terms like this a lot Uh, number one gender identity a person's inner sense of being a girl or woman or a boy or a man or some combination of both or something else including having no gender at all. This may or may not correspond to one's sex assigned at birth. So again, this is is the way that our culture is trying to develop words and terms to, to think about these things. So what is a person's internal sense of their gender? Does a person think of themselves as a man or as a woman or as neither a man nor a woman or as as a combination of man and woman. And so as as people think through this, we call this gender identity or people call this gender identity. Uh, Secondly, gender dysphoria, a concept uh, that is about clinically significant distress or impairment related to gender incongruence which may include desire to change primary and or secondary sex characteristics, not all transgender or gender diverse people experience gender dysphoria. So gender dysphoria is is a distress, an impairment, a struggle that is incredibly severe that someone experiences when they feel like their internal sense of their gender 
doesn't match, is incongruent with their external biology. And, and this is a, a real struggle that people have that is incredibly serious, that probably people you know, whether you know that they're dealing with this or not, people you know are dealing with this and maybe have been dealing this, with this for a very long time and an incredibly painful situation to deal with where they, they feel like there is a mismatch between their internal sense and their, their biology. And so there is an incongruence that they're dealing with and, and it, can be, it can be excruciating, um, even things like, like looking in the mirror or thinking of themselves as a man or as a woman or being called a man or a woman because of this internal psychological struggle that they're dealing with. Um, Next is non-binary, a term used by some individuals whose gender identity is neither girl, woman, nor boy, man. So a person who says, well, I don't really fit in either of those categories. My internal sense of gender doesn't fit in either the male category or the female category. Um, and then finally, transgender, an umbrella term describing individuals whose gender identity does not align in a traditional sense with the gender they were assigned at birth, it may also be used to refer to a person whose gender identity is binary and not traditionally associated with that assigned at birth. So again, again, we, we are living in a world, whether we want to acknowledge it or talk about it or not, we're living in a world where we have a lot of neighbors and family members, brothers and sisters in Christ that are struggling with this, some in, in small ways, in way, ways that they they are able to cope with and deal with, and some in, in huge ways that are excruciatingly painful for them because they feel like, for whatever reason, they feel like their internal sense of who they really are and their biology just don't match. And so they feel like they're a man trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a man's body, or they don't feel like they fit in either of those categories. But when we, when we talk about transgender individuals, or we talk about individuals with gender dysphoria that are experiencing this incongruence, we're not talking about something biological, as in someone who has intersex condition. We're talking about something that's internal, something that's psychological. And we also need to understand that not everyone who identifies as transgender is experiencing this kind of excruciating gender dysphoria and not everybody who is experiencing gender dysphoria identifies as transgender. Again, you probably know people, whether they will ever tell you or not, you probably know people that are experiencing gender dysphoria, that, that are really struggling with their internal sense of self. And they, they have never really felt like a man or they've never really felt like a woman. Let, let me kind of walk through some different, different ways that, that people experience this. One is early onset gender dysphoria. We're talking about small kids pre-puberty uh, pre that experience it. And, and again, this is, this is probably a controversial statistic, but according to all available studies done on the persistence rates of dysphoria in kids, 61 to 88 percent of early onset dysphoria cases end up desisting. That is, the dysphoria goes away after puberty. So there's some good news that a lot of young kids that, that deal with this feeling pre-puberty, that once they, they go through puberty, they don't deal with this anymore. Most kids that are dealing with it pre-puberty won't deal with it 
post-puberty. So that's, that's really good news. Again, that's bad news if, if drastic and radical medical procedures are performed on prepubescent kids, especially if there's a good chance that they won't deal with it later on. But the other side of it is those whose dysphoria doesn't desist after puberty will likely battle dysphoria for the rest of their lives. I have a preacher friend. I have a preacher friend. His name is Stephen. And Stephen has shared that he has dealt with gender dysphoria his entire life. He's married. He has kids. But he has struggled with both same-sex attraction, like we talked about last week, and also gender dysphoria. He has never really felt like a man. Whether that's because of gender stereotypes, whether that's because of things that he went through, I don't know why he feels that way, but he feels that way. I don't know why all of us feel different ways, why we deal with some of the psychological things that we deal with, but this is a very real and very painful thing that he has gone through his entire life and will probably continue to deal with and struggle with his entire life and has to find ways to, to deal with this. And sharing it with his brothers and sisters ought to be something that, that we all are willing to say, brother, tell me about what you're dealing with. Tell, tell me what you're struggling with and, and be there for one another and help one another, encourage one another. He, he has a wife that seems to be incredibly helpful and, and loving and compassionate towards him in, in what he's dealing with. Okay, so on the one hand, we have this uh, early onset gender dysphoria with kids that sometimes grow out of it, and then we have this persistent gender dysphoria that, that people deal with their entire lives, can be incredibly painful, um, sadly, sadly has led many people to take their own lives because they are dealing with this and don't know how to, to cope with it and live with it. But there's also a phenomenon that's happening right now a lot, and that is what is being called rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is a phenomenon where the development of gender dysphoria is observed to begin suddenly during or after puberty in an adolescent or young adult who would not have met criteria for gender dysphoria in childhood. So we're talking about teenagers, usually, who are suddenly saying that they are struggling with gender dysphoria. And, and in a lot of cases, in most cases, this rapid onset gender dysphoria appeared to be strongly associated with peer contagion, which is the process where an individual and peer mutually influence each other in a way that promotes emotions and behaviors that can potentially undermine their own development or harm others. So there are a lot of teenagers right now who are identifying as trans, who are experiencing gender dysphoria. They're experiencing gender dysphoria. They do not feel like, especially young girls, that do not feel like they're girls. And part of that is probably due to the fact that it is happening with all of their friends and it has become a social phenomenon. It has become a social contagion and it is spreading amongst young, young especially young girls. And so we have multiple areas that we're dealing with. You can't just lump everyone together. My friend Stephen is not experiencing what he's experiencing because of social contagion, because of peer contagion. It's not why he is experiencing what he's experiencing. But some young people, many young people, are experiencing that. The numbers are through the roof right now. 
through the roof of young people, especially young teenage girls who are identifying as trans because this is spreading amongst their peer group. And so, so we have to understand sort of what's going on in the world around us. But the, the big question comes down to this. When there is incongruity, when there is incongruity between a person's biological sex and their internal sense of gender, which one should take precedence? That's the question, isn't it? That's the question. The question is, who are you really? Are you really who your biology says that you are? Or are you who your internal sense says you are? Now, that can be an incredible and real struggle, can't it? And we live in a world today that says you are who you feel you are. Whoever you feel you are, be that person. But Scripture tells us a different story. Scripture tells us a different story. Scripture tells us that we are to favor God's creational intent for the body. This is why what the body is and what the body's purpose is, what God's intention and purpose for the human body is, that's why this is so important. It's not just about arguing about rules. It's not just about writing people off. It's not just about being mad at people. It's about asking ourselves and asking others, by what story are you living? And what does that story say about the human body? Our story, the, the story of Scripture, says that the human body is incredibly important. It all goes back to Genesis 1. All of this story about sexuality goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. Their man is mankind, human beings, humanity. God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Our maleness and femaleness, our sexed bodies, our gendered bodies are part of what it means to be God's image bearers in the world. Being God's image bearers in the world is not about what we do as much as what we are. What we are and what we are is embodied embodied. It's not just about the fact that we're, we're conscious or we're thinking or we can reason. Our being image bearers of God is about who we are in our totality. And who you are in your totality includes who you are in your embodied, gendered self. Even, even if your internal self doesn't feel that way for whatever reason. It's about, it's about this story says and teaches us, for all of us, that who you are is God's image bearer, and part of that, it's inseparable from your gendered self, your embodied self. We have passages like Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 5, part of the law of Moses that said, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, now why? Why would the law of Moses say men shouldn't wear women's clothes and women shouldn't wear men's clothes? There could be lots of different reasons why that law was given. I would guess that it probably has to do with function and role. Function and role. Because men have a function and role to play in the home, in, in society, in, in now in the church. Women have a role to play in, in the family, in society, in the church. And, and for a man to take on a woman's role or a woman to take on a man's role is to give up what they're supposed to be doing and to try to take somebody else's job and role and responsibility. 
And so God is very clear about the fact that men and women have this partnership where they're working together as equals, as, as complementary halves of humanity to image God, to rule and reign over his creation, and that they each have their, their distinct role to play. And that we cannot, we cannot blend these two or, or blur the lines between these two. As we move into the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, we see that even in the church, men and women have, have roles that are both, are both significant and important and they have a role to play. And, and to, to pretend that that doesn't exist or to, to, um, to dismiss those things would be to kind of ignore what, what the creational intent of the body is. But also, also for us to, to double down on gender stereotypes would also be a mistake, wouldn't it? For us to say, well, men are better at this, or women are better at that, or men are like this, or women are like that. We just don't find that kind of thing in Scripture. It's, it's not what it's about. It's not about men are this way, and women are that way, and men are good at this, and women are good at that. That's not what we find in Scripture. We find in Scripture that you're a man because of your biology, or you're a woman because of your biology, and if you're a man, here's your responsibility. It doesn't mean you're going to be good at it. It just means this is your responsibility. If you're a woman, here's your responsibility. It doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be good at it. It just means this is your responsibility. This is, this is the, the role and the task that you've been given to play. And, and we bring glory to God in playing that. And we've got to be very careful that we don't incorporate these worldly gender stereotypes into our way of thinking. Because again, that reinforces a spectrum view of gender. And then we tell people that you are less of a man. We joke that if you, if you say that or you do that, you're going to have to turn in your man card, right? That, that kind of thing reinforces an idea, a narrative that Scripture doesn't support. That you're not a man because you are good at this or you're not a man because you like that or you're not a man because you have this kind of personality, or you're not a woman because you don't like this, or you're not this way. This is not what makes somebody a man or a woman. Uh, here's four things as we close. Four things the church should do. Number one, be compassionate towards those who experience gender incongruence to whatever degree. Those that have gender dysphoria or those that just feel out of place. Have compassion on people compassion on people. And the more we double down on our stereotypes, the more we, you know, churches all the time have men's functions or women's functions that, that double down on stereotypes and are not compassionate towards those that, that are men or are women, but don't necessarily like this or like that. And we're not practicing compassion towards those who are who are in excruciating pain because of their gender incongruence that they experience. Number two, refuse to live in anger or fear. Social media, cable news, the culture wars want you to live in anger and fear. Jesus doesn't. And you cannot love people well when you live in anger and fear. You can't. You may not be able to help it if something provokes anger or fear in you, but put it away. 
Put it away quickly. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't live in anger or fear. We, we, we are more than conquerors in Jesus. Refuse to live in anger or fear. Number three, reject worldly gender stereotypes. Reject worldly gender stereotypes. That's not what makes a man a man or a woman a woman. Number four, embrace the view that God's creational intent for the body takes precedence over a person's internal sense of self. That's what this class has been about since the beginning, that your body is significant and God's intention for your body is significant. God wants your body to be holy and for your body to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. And he has a plan and an intention for your body. And all of us, in one way or the other, have desires or feelings or thoughts that don't match up with God's intention and will for us and for our bodies. Faith is deciding to live according to the will of God, even when our internal desires are are not in, in, that, in that flow. It, it, is, it is about saying, I will trust you, Jesus, with my body. I will trust you with my sexuality. I will trust you with my life. I will trust you with my past, my present, and my future. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, so many of our brothers and sisters and neighbors are struggling. And Father, they've had to struggle in silence because They've not had a, a forum, an opportunity to share, uh, to share their heartaches and their pains. Father, help us to, to be more compassionate towards those who are struggling in this way. Father, help us to also uh, be faithful with the, the story, with the truth, with the message that you've given us. Help us, Father, to live in, in alignment with the truth even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, even when, when everything inside of us is moving in a different direction. Help us, Father, to live by faith, to trust you with our life, to trust you with our past, with our present, with our future. Father, thank you for Jesus. May we walk ever closer to him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.